We're going to continue in the Word of God, studying the book of Philippians today. And um, one of the things I'm so appreciative of, and was already prayed for this morning up here, is um, the, the men that God raises up to be leaders in their homes and also in the community. And I don't know if you're, if you're here today and you've been affected, but particularly as a guy, if you've been affected or, or transformed by someone's leadership in your home or in the community, maybe in your church, um, we can be thankful for those that God has put in our path to teach us to be great leaders. Um, and today we're going to talk about God's qualifications for uh, great leadership, what it looks like to be a great leader in the kingdom of God. And specifically, I would say since it's Dad's Day, for, for dads to do that, what that looks like. And so um, I'm going to ask that we do what we always do. We're going to pray as we enter into God's Word, and we're going to spend some time talking uh, through the second chapter of Philippians today. So please pray with me if you would today. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for the chance we have to be here together to worship you, and we do thank you for the rain. Uh, it's funny to me that we sometimes uh, don't appreciate rain whenever it's such a blessing uh, from you that we get it at all. Um, Father, we pray that today as we enter into your word that your Holy Spirit would teach us what we need to learn from it, and then it would not just be a great talk and we would go away unchanged, but that each one of us, Father, would come into your house and, and, and encounter you in such a way that we would leave changed that we would, we truly want to be more uh, of who you're calling us to be and less of ourselves. And so would you teach us today, Father, by your grace and your mercy, um, what your word uh, says to us today. And may you be glorified as we live that out together in this uh, community of faith. We give you praise and glory for the opportunity to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. So go ahead and turn, if you would, to the book of uh, Philippians, chapter 2. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, um, there's one on the end of the rows, and we have plenty this morning. I've got to push a couple more of these. There we go, and it's on page 819, I believe, of, um, of our Bibles on the pews. So grab that and look at it with me if you would. And anytime we enter into the Word of God, I encourage you to read it and not just listen to what I say about it because it matters, right? So dig in yourself. Um, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to talk here um, about what Paul said to the church in, in Philippi. Here it goes, verse 1. If you have any encouragement uh, from being united in Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness or in compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not to your own interest, but also to the interest of others, your attitude then should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and in, in every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, this is a great admonition, and it's right on the heels of Paul talking about his great suffering for the gospel and what um, you know, God has called him to do in obedience. But there's a key word that's left out in the NIV that's profound, and it comes to the very, it's verse 1, and it says, therefore... Anytime there's therefore is in scripture, it's there for a reason, right? And it's because of all those things, Paul says, therefore, to you, your instruction is, 
And he says, if you have anything, any, and you can read it there, any encouragement from being united with Christ, if there's um, anything. I was struck by this because um, I think sometimes we're following God. Uh, we want everything, right? Like, I don't know if you're like me, but when you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died to forgive your sins, that you, you bring nothing of your own works, you, you bring no goodness yourself to the gospel, that you are completely lost, and that when he saves you from the, 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 the rubbish pile of life, he redeems you fully, that you, you're instantly overwhelmed with gratitude to a father who could love you that much to send his son to die for you. I don't know if that was your experience. That was my experience. I was overwhelmed with his mercy and grace. But, but then quickly we go from that place of being satisfied that, G, that God gave us anything in Jesus at all to wanting God to give us everything in Jesus. Are you like that at all? I feel that way sometimes. I want more. And I, I think it's good we say, well, I want more of Jesus. But the problem is I think sometimes I want, I want more for myself. Um, it's almost as if I'm, I'm accusing God of failing at his job when he doesn't tell me everything, show me everything, or give me everything that I want. Paul here, when he's writing to the church in Philippi, and they are in a struggle, this is not an easy time in their life, he says, therefore, in this, in this life and death battle of believing the gospel and trusting Jesus with everything, therefore, if you have anything in Christ Jesus, this becomes the qualifier for what he says is next, which is what God um, has designed for excellent leadership, Right? That, that's where his instructions are going to go, but he wants to start with a preposition that if you have anything in Christ Jesus, that's what the word says, any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship with the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion. Now, I don't know how it is for you, but whenever I get like kind of, you know, crabby about what I don't have from God, it's too easy to forget all that I do have from God right? And Paul says, this is the qualifier. This is the qualifier. If there's anything that you've received from Jesus. And, and so the question then is, has God given us anything, not everything? And, and the truth is that I believe that it's from that place of being appreciative of what God has given us that he builds our lives, Right? It's from the place of acknowledging his mercy, unwarranted, that God begins to develop us into great men and women of the gospel. And it's a place that I think we have to return to with Paul, because the Philippians believe the gospel, and yet they're discouraged in this moment. And Paul says, listen, if you have anything from Jesus Christ, then do these things. I've talked to many people who have said, well, Bill, I don't have nothing, right? I have some friends that have failed English. that I don't have nothing. Or they say, I have nothing. I, I have too little. I, I don't have, and whatever it is, the resources to make a difference, the time to make a difference, the, the passion to make a difference, the, the understanding of Scripture to make a difference, the, the ability to pray to make a difference. I mean, I, I constantly run into friends of mine who believe the gospel and yet tell me all the things that they lack. Paul says, if you have anything from God, that's what you build on. That we don't need everything to start. So my question, and it's on the sheet if you grabbed an engagement sheet today, is 
And I want you to take this seriously, but what has Christ given you? What has Christ given you? And, and that's not a throwaway question because if you have anything in Christ, right? And there's some, there's some words that we can read there. Encouragement from being united with Christ, comfort in his love, fellowship in the spirit, tenderness and compassion. Those are some of the things. But I want you to take an inventory and say, well, what has Christ given me? And I told you last week, this idea of Christ is a really big issue, right? It's the Messiah. It's God on the cross. It's the truth of the gospel. It's the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It's not just this kind of dead religion that someone else is doing for you. It's a gift to you. And, and so the question becomes, what has Christ given you? And I think, and maybe, you know, but I think as soon as we get off the pity pot and we start to really examine what God has given us, it's a lot. I would encourage you to think of those things. What has Christ given you? All right? Now, we're going to pick up in verse 5. We're going to come back to verses 3 and 4, but picking up in verse 5. If, if you have any of those things, if you have anything from Christ at all, therefore, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Um, oh, I think I've made a mistake here. Hang on one second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, we'll just go, let's go through it in order. Three, do, not, uh, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Now look, each of you, not to your own interest, should look, but also to the interest of others. I don't know where I'm at here. I'm completely befuddled by my notes this morning. I'm just going to say that. This, this is verse 5. Everything is about relationships in the church. What does that mean? Oh, yeah, being like-minded, the same spirit, uh, one spirit, one love, one mind. Um, I just want to take, because I want to take a break here for a minute and just talk about this, Right? There's something that Paul continually calls the church to, which is unity, oneness, right? And the church is all about relationships. That's what it really is, is grounded in. Um, but I want to talk to you about two kind of forms of relationship that we see in the church. It might not be fair. Criticize me later. Criticize me now if you want. The one is to find a church where everyone is like me, Right? Um, it says, be of one mind and one spirit, you, you, you know, um, kind of this idea of having, it's not just like a thought process of the mind, but it's like this kind of same motivations, you know, people like me, the people that look like me already, the people that act like me already. As a matter of fact, um, we had our booth at the Swatcher Fest, and someone came up to me, and they talked to me about looking for a church, and they want to look for a church that's already like them. That's what they were telling me, you know, like, I'm going to this other church, but they're not like me, and I, I want to find a church that's like me, and where people are like me, and I can, you know what I mean? That's what we look for a lot of times, and that's one way to find this unity of the Spirit that God's talking about, I guess. Um, but I think that there's a bigger thing that's happening in the church, and it's this, that we can hang out with people that aren't like us and learn to love them. Like, learn to, to be united with them. Learn to have the same spirit. To step back a little bit and, and learn that, that, that God is doing something bigger through his people than my own desires coming in, if that makes sense. Um, being of one mind, of one spirit. And I think those are two different models. 
I mean, the one model is where it must be we're in control and we kind of, we assess what we want and then we find a community that gives it to us and then we, we go, oh, look how well it fits. I had a good plan for myself and I found the solution good for me. And there's another model where we show up and we're like, man, none of this stuff makes sense. Nothing really works here. I don't understand it, but God's called me here. And then over time, we begin to see God knit together a community of faith that would never have existed were it not for one thing. You know what that is? The gospel of Jesus. It becomes the image of Christ that us together and nothing else. There was a criticism that I used to always levy, which is, well, if we didn't go to church together, I, I would never hang out with you. Right? I'm not saying that's true. I love you guys. But, I mean, there's a truth to that, right? We see that, that if we are in, in, in the church together, well, will we even hang out? I'm not sure that we would hang out. And we can kind of go, boy, that's terrible, you know? Um, I want to go to church where my friends go to church or whatever. But there's something really crazy awesome about the fact that you would never be together were it not for Jesus. You would never darken the door together. You, would not, you wouldn't show up at one of those house and say, how can I help you in a time of need were it not for Jesus? You wouldn't get sick about someone else's problems. You know, I mean, you're like sick, like nauseous when you hear someone else is going through marital problems or they've lost a grandchild or, or a parent. All of a sudden, this compassion that you would have for your friends, sure, people like you, yeah, but people who aren't like you at all, where does this come from? And it's the gift of God. And I think when Paul writes to the church in Philippi, he's writing to a group of people who have a tendency to be not like each other. He says, therefore, if you have anything from Christ Jesus, be like-minded. Have one spirit. Does that make sense? So there's kind of two models there. Maybe it's a false choice. Maybe, I mean, because I, I kind of think there's a lot of power in going to church with my friends. I want to go where people, you know, already like me. But I think that God is doing so much, something so much bigger when we find ourselves with people we would never choose to hang out with necessarily. And God, continue, God does his greatest work. And then the question becomes, well, how in the world can I be part of a community like that? And I think there's one word answer, and we're going to learn about it in Christ's own model, and it's humility. Humility. And, and what, what Paul does after saying that, you know, each of you should not look after your own interests, but the interests of others, um, that, that there's this identification of things that Jesus himself did in the incarnation that were ridiculously humbling, just insanely humbling, Right? And this, so your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, Paul says, if you have any encouragement from Jesus. Here it is. Verse 6, who, that's Jesus, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Right? And, and what that means is that it says in the very nature of God, but it means that, that he was always um, sustained in God. He was, he was ever present with the Father. This doesn't mean that he wasn't and then he was. It literally, it literally means that he was always um, there in the Father. Who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality of God something to be grasped. And the only reason that second part has any power is because the first part is so true. Right? There would be no humility in Jesus coming as a man if you were not eternally existent with the Father. But the fact that he had eternally dwelled with the Father and has come as a man is a dis 
ridiculous act of humility on his part. We know that's what the gospel says. That, that, that's how God demonstrated his great love for us is by sending his son. Here, having subsisting as uh, in God from the beginning, he did not lay hold of the equality of God, of himself. I want to remind you of a few times in Jesus' life that he could have easily laid hold of equality. And there are times in Scripture where he said, I and the Father am one, right? If you see me, you've seen the Father. So he doesn't, he doesn't reject this idea that him and the Father are the same. But he does say things like this. When he teaches people to pray, he says this, our Father. It's Father's Day, right? They say, Jesus, we want to pray like you pray. How do you pray? And the first two words out of his mouth is our Father. That's a ridiculously humble position to be in when you've been with God forever. Our Father. That's how you pray. That's what he tells us. Later on in his ministry, in Jesus' ministry, when he's hanging on the cross, dying for the sins of the world, the scoffers and mockers say, if you're so stinking powerful, why don't you call down legions of angels to get you off the cross? That's not a rhetorical question. That was a real possibility. That if Jesus had wanted to end his suffering, if he had wanted to take an easy way out, if he had wanted to, uh, to end the world right there in the moment as, as the world rejected him as the very son of God, he could have certainly done it. And he was mocked for his inability to do so. He, he didn't choose to have equality with God in that moment, to demonstrate it some other time in his life. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's in the desert, and Satan is tempting him. And he says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself off of this place, because angels will come from heaven and catch you. Jesus, in great humility, before the accuser, the evil one, Satan, who would work against everything that God is doing in the world, did not lay hold of his equality with God, but instead chose humility. Those are crazy things. And if there's something to the fact that at the beginning of his ministry, he was tempted in this way to lay hold of equality, and at the end of his ministry, he was tempted in this way to lay hold of this equality, and he does not do it. Paul says, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality of God something to be laid hold of. But, verse 7, made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Right? It actually means that not only did, you know, God try to decide to come, but when we saw him, it says what? We found him. We found him, look at verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man. He came in a very humble way. This is God's perfect model of leadership. I want to tell you something. This is not a model that the world celebrates. We don't celebrate humility. We, we don't celebrate quiet leadership. I'll be honest with you. We usually ignore it in the world. You know? People who are submitted unto God, we just don't seem to pay attention to that. Only when you're doing great things. Only when you're claiming equality. Only when you're doing these miracles. 
That's what we pay attention to, but not the humbling work of being a servant and a leader. He found as an appearance a man. He humbled himself. And then the, Paul says, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, this ultimate tragedy of the universe. This is not what powerful leaders do, giving themselves over, being found as human, right? Now, you go, great. I've heard that about Jesus. I'll tell you about a problem we have in the church. We act, you ready for this? We act as if we are in a different situation than Jesus was. We too often try to lay hold of equality with God, right? You're perfect, aren't you? You're living out the gospel perfectly, right? You're, you're being redeemed. I mean, you're, you know what I'm saying? And I, I, you know where this comes from, man. You look around the church and you go, they're screwing it up. I expect them to do better. And we, of ourselves, expect to lay hold of perfection, equality with God, when clearly it's not what Jesus did himself. He gave himself over to death in full obedience. My question is, and this is crazy, right? My question is then, how should Jesus' um, humility shape our relationships? Maybe a better question is, does Jesus' humility shape our relationships? For me, I'm not sure that it always does. Right? What does it mean to admit that you don't have all the answers? What does it mean, listen to me, to admit to your kids that you failed them? Now, Jesus didn't have to do that, but we do. But we often don't. There's so much power in humble leadership and saying things like, I was wrong. I regret that. I made a mistake. Over and over again, we see in our own relationships this idea that we want to be above it all. We don't want to be affected by the, the world and the people in the world. As Christians, maybe more so than anyone else, we try to fly above everything but the truth is that we have a model from a God who entered into humanity that was fully flawed and yet redeemed it. He lived in that space. And I'm just saying that this, this ridiculous humility of Jesus is an invitation for you and me to be human, to admit mistakes. There's this crazy thing that happens that whenever you and I allow Jesus to shape our lives and we're like, and we enter in that space and we let people in and we believe the gospel is sufficient, like we believe that Jesus dying on the cross makes us righteous despite ourselves, that we can admit failure to each other and in that space allow other people to be included, to be okay, to be loved. I'm not sure if that's making sense to you guys, but I, th there's something in this uh, entering into this humble position that changes everything. 
seems to me that it was Jesus' model. Does the humility that Jesus demonstrated shape my relationships at all? Should it? Or maybe how, how does it? Paul says, do nothing, in verse 3, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. That's a different way to look at it. Not looking to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Demonstrating humility toward other people. There's so much opportunity for us to do this um, in our lives. I mean, I'm just telling you, there's so much opportunity to do this. And, and, it's, and it's in every relationship we have, and it's in every encounter we have, that we can choose, choose humility. We can choose to not have our own righteousness. We can choose to believe and to, to engage people where they are in their lives without judgment. And that's a hard thing, but we can do that because of the power of the gospel. This is Jesus' own demonstration of power. Um, so, after all that, you go, well, what, you know, well, great. I'm not sure I understand what that means and how would I do that. But then Paul goes on to say this about the story of Jesus. Therefore, do you see it in your Bibles? Therefore, because of Jesus' humble submission, because of his obedience to death, even death on a cross, because of those things, therefore, God glorified Jesus above all things, right? Giving him the name above all names. Therefore, God exalted him to the very highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And I want you to see that today. That the glory of Christ is so far above anything we can achieve that, that that's why we worship him. That because of his humility and his entering into this very broken place, God raised him to this point of glory though he is eternally glorified. And it says in the scripture there are three places that he's glorified. It says he's glorified in heaven. That means right now, the Son of God is being worshipped by angels in heaven. No matter how you're feeling about his worthiness, no matter how you're feeling about, you know, your understanding of who he is, that right now the angels, the stars, everything in the highest of heavens is screaming praise to, the, to Jesus Christ. He is seated at the highest place of worship. It says that he's going to be praised on the earth. That's where we are right now. And under the earth. The realm of those who reject and not believe. These are the places. He's exalted to the highest places the magnitude of the glorification of Jesus. Now listen, that at his name every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I wonder if our time on this earth, amongst many things that God is doing, is an opportunity for us to bend a knee to practice taking a knee. One of the things that I hear so often, associated with Father's Day, um, is I'm proud. So proud. And, and, and I understand what's being communicated, but you know, the truth is that we're called to take a knee, to bend the knee to Jesus says that we will, every tongue will confess 
that he is Lord. And I think that in the opportunity we have to be humble and the opportunity we have to, to bend, we demonstrate a faithfulness in God and a recognition that we will be present with him and willingly bend to him, willingly submit to him. All of these things are wrapped up in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I wonder, if you are like me, do you have a hard time taking a knee to submitting yourself? In the moment where the choice is, be proud or submit, do you choose pride? We have in our Savior Jesus Christ this demonstration of this greatest servant that ever lived, this greatest gift to humanity, where he chose to bend a knee. And today, um, we're going to remember that again. I think it's striking that um, Paul says in this letter that everyone will confess Jesus' lordship over their life. That means his, his being in chargedness, right? And that's you, me, and everybody on this planet will submit to Jesus. Um, and here's an opportunity to do it. I'm going to ask you to pray with me, and then we're going to receive communion together. Um, if you feel compelled to do that, and I want to say a few things about a communion table. This isn't ours. This is Jesus Christ who gave himself up for the world. And we do this as a demonstration of his power and his authority to offer to you this gospel that is not, um, that, that, that's his gift to you and that we didn't deserve. And I'm going to ask as we approach the table that we consider the humility that Jesus demonstrated for us. And are, are we willing to do the same in our lives? All of us. Husbands, wives, children, parents, brothers and sisters. Will we um, be marked in the same way that we've seen Jesus' life marked? So pray with me as we prepare for communion today. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for the truth of the gospel. And honestly, these truths are too great to be grasped that that you would send your son um, to come and live here and to be put to death by us. Sinners who would clamor for his blood, for him to be removed from this world, even though he is the only person that can redeem us. And Father, as we sat at the foot of your cross in amazement of his submission, we at the same time celebrate the glory of his work the amazing truth of the resurrection. And Father, honestly, as those following him, we want to know that. We want to understand the call to humility that he demonstrated for us. Not just theoretically, but in our lives. For um, my friends here today who are struggling to know you, I pray that in your great mercy you would make yourself known. And to my friends who are like me, who are flawed and messed up, and gosh, Lord, don't think, know that we deserve to be at your table. We just don't deserve to be there. That you would guide us by the grace of your spirit to a place where we can sit with you and rest and eat and believe and know you. 
And Father, as we um, come today, I pray that you would do a work in our heart that no matter what the world asks of us, no matter what we would say about one another or even ourselves, that we would instead be marked by the humility that Jesus demonstrated in his life. And that in the end, no matter who else we feel like is disappointed, you're pleased that your will is done and that our lives here become more like Jesus' life. We pray that you would do this work in the name and the power of Jesus Christ. Amen.